my story is rock solid because I didn't write the story. They did, and they put it in writing. They're the ones who's the letters behind their names. So I was abused, and people tried to help me, and they were prevented. Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm Petra Belzebor, and this is the place to discuss tips, tricks, and hacks to build your resilience through your worst rock bottoms and get you to a place of success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life, professionals, individuals who've been through their own adversity, and allow them to share their authentic and real life stories, opinions, and ideas about how to utilize our worst rock bottoms and allow them to catapult us into success. Welcome to the show. Hey guys, I just got off uh, my ooh, ooh. I just got off my recording with getting my lights right. I just finished interviewing Craig Lewis. Um, and I wanted to caveat the recording because we, we go through some ups and downs and he really talks about a whole lot of trauma that he's experienced in his life that has affected um, a lot of his life and the fact that he's still in quite a survival place. Um, and I really want you to, to bear with the interview because the, the end point and the tools and his, his viewpoint on the world is just so magically beautiful. It had me in tears, which is not that hard to do, but it really did because I felt like we connected from a heart point and really reminded everyone and ourselves that somebody who is struggling with what the world may see as a mental illness um, is often somebody who ha is just surviving their conditions of trauma, of not experiencing love or not having the foundations uh, in order to have the tools to live in a world. So, so he was um, under many different types of psychiatric medication uh, and uh, residential homes when he was a teenager and psychiatric medication well into his adult life. Uh, and it's actually only been in the past four years that he has fully gone off medication. And we very much connected on the fact that when you're when you're in the bubble of that kind of normal, you're, you're numbed out to, to what the real world is. You don't actually have to test and build your resilience. And so the past four years have been extremely challenging for him uh, because he just hasn't had the blueprint for living in the world. And he, and he talks about being homeless. And um, he also talks about Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, about seeing the absolute beauty in everything, about giving back, about this beautiful empathy and compassion, forgiveness for the people who have put him or had a, had a, you know, a, a reason to. He also talks about forgiveness and the, to the people that have um, played a part in putting him in the situations that he found himself in. Um, he just has this beautiful approach to how he sees the world. And so I really urge you to listen to this one right through to the end because there's so much beauty, there's so many lessons for life, particularly when I ask him, what are his hopes for the future? Like, listen out for that answer, because there's something really profound that each and every one of us can, can take from it and can learn. Enjoy this episode. Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm excited about this one. I think all the way from Mexico City, we've got Craig Lewis. You are in Mexico City, right? Yes? Yeah. 
That's correct. <laughs> What's interesting here is that we don't know each other at all. All we've had is a bit of interaction on LinkedIn where you've commented on, on some of my content and then gave me little hints of your very highly dramatic story. And I was like, Craig, let's talk, right? And so you're in a hotel room and we just thought, let's just jump right in and be brave and, and talk about your, your story. Welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super psyched. And yeah, I'm in Mexico City. I arrived here last night on a plane from just inside the border of Mexico. I had to do something, so now I'm here. And then later today, I'll take the bus to my house, just like two hours from here. Lovely, and you just woke up and you've had a rough night, but you're committed and you're like, I'm gonna show up anyway. And so here we are in your hotel room. Uh, yes. I'm yeah. home, obviously. <laughs> yeah, at, at one o'clock in the morning, I'm banging on the hotel door across the street where I had a reservation, where they were expecting, but they were closed. So what was I going to do except do something? Here we are. Here we are. Here we are indeed. Um, so thank you for, for reaching out. I'm, of course, curious, curious about your story. Um, give us just some context about you at the moment. So what, are you, what is Craig passionate about? What are you involved in? What's important to you? <laughs> Lots of things. <laughs> Beyond my own self-preservation, which is... It takes effort. I don't have it easy. Um, I'm passionate about so many things and I care about people. And I care about people who don't have what they need because I know what that feels like. And I care about them as much as I care about all other people. However, all other people don't necessarily care about people like me and them. And because I look a certain way and I'm a white man from the United States, there's an illusion that that means something more than it does me. Because it does mean something. I understand privilege is real. But it's also such an illusion because the way I grew up, what I experienced and what I know, sets me apart from most white men that I know. And I know that because I am one and I live my life every day, so I know what happens. I know how different I am. And so I know how much I don't relate with certain types of people because of certain things. And that, that understanding of the world fuels me to make sure through my actions, as a flawed human being, of course, but through my actions, that the people who have less, not that I represent them, but I, I help make it so that people like them and people like me get to be heard because we live in a society that's run by a power dynamic. That's also an illusion. And so because I see clearly through all that, and I don't give a you-know-what, which is fun and also hard. Yeah. Um, I will speak with you. I'll pursue you. I'll pursue anybody that will give me a chance. It's not about promoting a business. That's a side thing. It's about how do you promote how to change your life so you don't have to be in situations. Like the guy I saw last night in the street who had nothing, and I helped him because that's all you can do sometimes is do the right thing when you can. So that's what makes me passionate. That's why I'm alive. Like when I was outside last night, Banging on my hotel room door, which isn't this one, it's across the street. Oh. And I came across a man, I just a brief anecdote, because it really backs up exactly what I'm saying. And I'm, I live this. There's a man knocking on the door. I can't speak Spanish very well, even though I live there. And, well, he couldn't get in either. And I didn't realize that he didn't have anything. You know, he was waiting to go to his like, cheap hostel room that he paid like 100 pesos for, which is like $5. And they're not letting them in because they're not opening the door. 
I come over here to this nicer place. I pay my money because I could. I go outside to get some food because I was hungry. And there he is on the street. I said, what's up? I understood he had nowhere to stay. I asked him some questions. I understood. I said, I can't pay for you to stay here. And you can't stay in my room with me. <laughs> I just met you. But how can I help you? And so I made sure he had enough money to go get a cheap room somewhere else. And we went out to dinner. Like two o'clock in the morning. It's out of the Korea, Five minutes from here. And had a great time. And that's who I am, and that's what I do, because I know what it's like to be in his shoes. So I must make sure that people don't have their voice heard or their needs met. That's my mission. That's my passion. That's why I'm speaking with you today. So what I'm hearing from what you're saying is that our what, what experiences that we have as, as young people and that are formative for us can really inform our, our passion and how our perspective on the world. And you're really trying to not, like, ignore or run away from whatever was in your past like many of us do but instead kind of face up and allow that to give you some empathy and connect with what's right in front of you my parents aren't so nice and they have a lot of money and i know their history a little bit even though they're my parents i don't know that much and so i know why they are the way they are to a certain degree so even though they were horrendously abusive to me and they're still alive and they're still horrendously abusive they, the experience taught me how not to be and how to be forgiving and accepting of those who are that way and to choose to move forward and to not let that bring me down. I know that I'm a living, walking, breathing example of surviving the impossible. So if that's the case and I know it's true, why don't I have fun? So have fun. Like live, live. Don't, don't just be alive. Most people in this world or many people, they're just living. They're just like, Existing. I can't, I can't accept that. I had to learn how to have, let me say, I was taught the hard way by some people who learned before I did what it meant to survive the impossible, to survive the most brutal adversity. And I've been surrounded by people like that for a long time. And without those people showing me the way so I could break out, I wouldn't be here today. So I have a responsibility to honor all those who had, influenced me in being able to be okay considering all circumstances. So that's my gift. It has also been given to me by the universe. So I love that. So that's like the perfect example of turning around the adversity that could give you the perfect excuse to be depressed the rest of your life or to uh, live a mediocre life or not give back in so many ways, right? But somehow you're choosing not to. I, I, I don't like these kind of diagnostic terms there's no question that I've been experiencing what some would call you know, depression. It, it's been pretty intense because of certain reasons. But also that's in part why I reach out to people like you because I know that the healing comes from speaking and I've not really been having the opportunity to do so because of some reasons. Hello, everybody. And um, that's why I'm here. That's, I, I chose to live the rest of my life until I'm 95 or 115 years old. And because I feel like my life just began, I'm only about 22 years old, even though I'm like <laughs> twice that. And I, and I know that, I know that. Because I know that, I can do anything. Okay, so let's go back. I wanna get some context here. You've talked about abusive parents, but I wanna really understand the rock bottoms that it led you to. So with whatever you're comfortable talking about on a public platform, I'm just curious about some of those formative years and what kind of led you uh, to, to, to this place. 
when I was 14 years old, my parents had me put into a psychiatric hospital. From seven, uh, age seven to 14, they went, they took me to psychiatrist after psychiatrist and social worker after social worker. Each time they were told, Mr. and Mrs., well, my last name's the same as theirs, um, your son is reacting to your behavior. You need help. And they immediately took me out of that provider's care and went to find someone else and told them the same story. And that person then told them, your son's reacting to your behavior, you need help. And they immediately, immediately pulled me out of that person's care. And around the seventh time, they found somebody who, for whatever reason, it could have been financial because unfortunately my parents have used money to do this. It's just, it's just their way. It's, I forgive them for what they do not know what they do. Um, they found somebody to agree with them and they had me locked up. Unfortunately for the world and for me perhaps, or not, depending on your perspective on things, I have a document that, that proves that when I was 14 years old, they knew that I was just a regular kid reacting to the dysfunction in the home. And they knew that my parents were doing something they shouldn't be doing. That was targeting their son for his reaction. It wasn't that was actually a problem. Not the anyone is actually, because we have this whole thing in society where we look at kids and say they're, they're the problem, when in fact, maybe they're reacting to something and we're not talking about it. So that's what happened here. And ultimately, despite facts that were written down, they gave me a diagnosis that's actually shit. And it was called schizophrenic form disorder, which you might be familiar with, which means, if not, it, in layman's terms, it means temporary schizophrenia that will go away. Let's talk about bullshit for a second. And let's talk about how it's backed up in writing. And so because I know when I was 14 years old, I have to document, I can send it to you, um, that the psychiatric evaluation upon my admission to a psychiatric hospital on April 13th, 1988, it says I had no psychosis, no thoughts disorder, no flight of ideas, and that they're concerned about something going on at home. Money buys things and money about a diagnosis that wasn't even real. Even now, it's even more laughed at than it was then. This concept of temporary schizophrenia, that will go away. I'm writing down in... How, how long were you sort of in the psychiatric unit? Because bearing in mind, I understand that 14, the, the, that's a very formative year in any young person's life, right? To then be detached from parents or to be put in that situation. How long did that go on for? I escaped four and a half years ago from everything. So essentially you've been in a psychiatric institution for a number of years, a, like been, a lot of your young adult life. I, I, I've been in a walking coma. And you know what happens when they say, they say, oh, that person's in a coma. They were aware of things, right? I've been in a walking coma since I was 14 and four years ago, well, we'll get to that story later. But to answer your question in specifics, because you're asking me a specific question, I was, in that, I, I was in that hospital for four months. And, well, when I couldn't find anything wrong with me, they gave me pills, and then they found something wrong with me. And then in the end of July 1988, I was transferred to a, a residential facility for 
emotionally disturbed adolescence. And um, in that facility, see, my parents, they were survivors of some things. You know, we come from a Jewish background, and they grew up in the early 1940s. They were born in, like, 1942 and 1944 or so in the United States. But back then, you know, you had the newspaper and the radio. And so there was a massacre of not just Jewish people, but including Jewish people all over Europe. My family is Eastern European background. So my parents mothers were exposed to the news every day and what was happening to Jewish people. And as far as I understand, they just internalized it because they couldn't tell children. You don't tell your children about genocide and murder and all these things. You don't have to. And so my grandmother's just treated my, both my parents without any love. And it's just an unusual circumstance that both my parents met and I guess fell in love or whatever they called it. Hmm. And they both had the same unresolved, not discussed abuse trauma history. They had me not knowing how to have a child and how to raise a child, certainly not knowing what love was. So when I was this kid, right, recognizing that there was something not okay at the home. Why, why are they different than other people? Why are we always in fights with people? What's all this stuff going on? Like, why is it always chaos? Why is my father screaming and yelling? Why is my mother in bed all day? What's going on here? And I started to speak about it. And then it wanted, of course, to take me in to see these providers. Craig's having an, an issue. He's this. Mr. Mrs. Lewis, your son's reacting to you seven times in a row. Ultimately, put him in the hospital. We can't find anything wrong with him. Let's give him pills. Then there's something wrong with him. He can't come home because if Craig comes home, if Craig gets better, what does that mean? It doesn't did you, look did you end up, did you have any siblings? Oh, I have a sister, yes. She's a social worker. I don't talk to her because I don't talk to her at all. Is she younger or older? She's younger. You know, she was the child that, um, you know, in these kind of situations, you know, there's a word for what happened to me. You'll, you'll be familiar. It's called Munchausen's syndrome by proxy. So I was the bad child. Yeah. yeah. I was also the bad child, but she was treated very differently. And she became like the security blanket for my mother and my father. So she was told her whole entire life that I was a problem. She's had a hard time knowing that that wasn't the case. We don't, we have no contact, but I digress. I was put into this facility after the four months in the hospital. And in that facility, it was, like I said, emotionally disturbed adolescence. Well, they did a really good job at disturbing in no, more than just emotional ways, this adolescent. And I can yeah. get into that if you like, because we're talking about formative years and trauma and there's things I can tell you about this that absolutely still affect me today. And it's part of why I'm like away from the United States and away from people who aren't nice and away from my family because I deserve peace, love, freedom, and a good life. And I can't have it with that kind of negativity, that kind of toxic, toxic, toxic love, I guess we'll call it. Not real, it's toxic. So yeah, so I'd love to hear. So I used to be a youth worker, right? I used to work with um, young offenders and in young people's mental health. Uh, and so the the, the teenage experience, uh, because it was difficult for me as well, uh, my heart's always quite drawn to it because um, we we see young people as 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 troubled and difficult and um, the dregs of society and ungrateful and you know criminals and all this sort of thing. And we don't see what you're describing, which is that thread of experience from our parents, from their, you know, the, the parents' lack of love, lack of support, that drives a teenager to then behave in ways that make them go, I told you so. I knew this kid wasn't going to be on the right tracks, that sort of thing. 
So, so you're in, so is this still a mental kind of um, facility for supporting adolescents or is it more like it, a... It, yeah, yes, it was an adult, it was a treatment program for emotionally disturbed adolescents. Was it a secure unit? Mm, it was in the community, but if you tried to leave without permission, you know, the police get calls. <laughs> oh, like that. <laughs> um, but okay, but you basically live there or you just have yeah. to come in, you, this oh. is your life. Okay. I lived in. I lived there for fifteen months, from fifteen to seven, sixteen and a half. And is it an education program, or is it just emotionally emotional education, as it were? I wouldn't call it emotional education. I'd call it abuse. Sure. Um, but there was an educational component. We went to school in the church next door. Right. Were you medicated? So much so that the day we have a holiday in the U.S called Thanksgiving. So much so that the day before Thanksgiving 1988, I sat down with the psychiatrist in the basement of our of the facility. And I showed him that I was having a reaction to the medication. And that was that I, I, I pulled up my shirt and I showed him that I had grown breasts. I was 15 years old, I grew breasts. And uh, he told me not to worry about it, it would go away. And that was the official record. It didn't document it. It don't have my documents. There's nothing in it about it, which is like scary. Uh, and I had breasts. Do you remember anyone from that time, sort of a teacher or somebody who acted as a, a, a role model or a pseudo parent of some kind? Anybody and everyone who tried to help me was prevented. And what I mean is that I received all my documentation from the Department of Mental Health in Massachusetts, where I was working, which is interesting, and I'm no longer working there. Um, and, and I received those documents in 2014. And in those documents, it, it, it includes documentation that they didn't realize they were giving me, but I certainly spoke about it and people aren't happy. So we know that, um, about 10 different people tried to advocate for me. And these foolish people, they just documented everything, not realizing that 30 years later, this kid was gonna get his hands on those documents and he was gonna look at them and say, I knew something was wrong and now I can prove it. No one can F with me now, like, oh, they try. My story is rock solid because I didn't write the story they did, and they put it in writing. And they're the ones with the letters behind their names. So I was abused, and people tried to help me, and they were prevented. And so where, where did this lead? I know for many of us on the podcast and within my own story, my, my past and, and the, the ups and downs there kind of led to my own crisis point, my own rock bottoms, you know? Um, where, where did this lead for you as, a, as an adult, I guess? Well, I, I, I was there for 15 months, and then they sent me home. They actually said I was cured, cured. Oh, wonderful. Cured from something that, that didn't actually exist. And uh, they sent me home, and then three months later, I was put back in the same psychiatric hospital and put back into another group home, another residential facility at the world-renowned McLean Hospital. And um, after that, they forced me out of the system because, well, who wants to you pay for a kid when he's 18. So they gave me a, a fake diploma, which is official. So 
who used to go to college, I did. But um, no, like I had a good eighth grade education, it's ridiculous. And um, finally I was 18 and I was free to be in the community. So they put me in a Nella group home. And after six months, I was like, screw this. Why would I do this shit? I can go out and party and be my punk rock self and like do whatever I want. And well, unfortunately I had no idea how to be. You know, I had to have plastic surgery to remove these growths in my chest and galgatamastia. So no one has any idea of the devastation that was for me. I was four, I was 15 years old, locked away. Everyone's told I'm mentally ill. I was ripped out of my home. I never saw my, my friends again. My my mother like told everyone in the world, like 10 hours a day on the phone. Craig's sick. Craig's sick. He's in a group home. He takes medication. He has schizophrenia. Mm-mm-mm. You know what she did? She just maligned her son. Because if anyone found out that her son was being victimized, she really needed to see somebody for help. Mm. When you have money, you can just do whatever you want and cover that shit up. And that's what they did. Now, I want to just be clear here. Head of my healing has been to forgive them. And their response to being forgiven was, was to disown me. Family-wide, because they were told that if I continue to talk about what happened as a child, that I would not be welcome. And so I said, okay. So I continued to talk about what happened to me as a child, and I was informed, I was informed that I was not welcome. Now, this is not a normal family, because, I mean, within like a 60-mile radius of where I grew up, or I should say 100 miles, we have family who probably have assets of mil- $6 million, I mean, I'm, I'm making an estimate here, millions and millions of dollars in homes and money and business, my, just in my like, first degree of separation family, and they have all this money. So do you, do you, um, are you angry? No, I, I'm angry at, good question, not at them. My parents don't know what they do. They, they are not well. And so I can't be angry at them for not knowing that they're not well. And I but, think they do know. But I, but I imagine, if I relate this to my experience, that that was a process for you to get to that point of understanding with empathy that they were humans with an, their own traumatic past that meant that they were incapable of giving you what you needed. But I know what the teenage experience is like, right? Before you understand that, like that's where the rage comes in. And sometimes it comes out, uh, you know, taken out on ourselves. Yeah. There was a woman in my life a while ago who experienced horrible things in her life. And she couldn't tolerate me not trying to make peace with my family, especially my mother for certain reasons. That's why I went out of my way to try to do that. And what the result of that was that I grew as a person that I had to finally have empathy for them and not be angry because my parents were unable to, to openly accept that they were wrong. And so they had to do it. You do when you want to keep something quiet, which is attack and distort. And that's kind of their thing. And so I was taught that the way to heal myself in part was to forgive and to try to be loving. And so that was a process. Yes. It is. It's a, like a fucking hard process, that one, right? 
Like that's like probably one of the hardest things I've done is to try and actually with empathy, look at my parents' journey and understand that they were doing the best they could in their own flawed way, you know? I, I, they, yeah, the, the, I, despite their own asser, uh, assertions of the otherwise, they think that I'm promoting some sort of conspiracy. That's not the word I use. Uh, that's their that's their word to describe how they think I think about them. It's kind of absurd. It just it, it lends further to the to the specter that they must live under <clears throat> that there's something um, wrong with me. But I'm awesome. And so, <laughs> and yeah, well, and also I want to say that if mental illness is playing a part, that there's no shame in that either. That that many of us uh, suffer with some kind of mental illness as a reaction to our past or even as a predisposition. And the stigma around it or around the way people talk about it actually isn't useful. Like we need to look at mental illness with compassion and help people cope because you're, everyone's a valued member of society if they just have the conditions to support them. I must, I must speak to this. The only time people want to, the only time people use the word ILL to describe me is when I'm having a reaction to not having my needs met. It's a phenomenal, it's, it's a phenomenal um, abuse of language that's been loaded so devastatingly. Uh, to, use it, to use words to describe people who are having a reaction to the world. So I don't uh, use that word at all, I-L-L. I don't relate with it. And I, in fact, I think, it's, I think it perpetuates people being unhealthy. Though, I'm, I'm as fine as anyone else in the world. And if and most people out there, if they have their needs met, if they're not under extreme distress, if they're not experiencing violence, if they don't know how, they don't have a issue of how they're going to eat food today, or they have, don't have shoes, or they don't have clothes, or they're, they're, they're where are they going to sleep tomorrow? Like, what are they going to do? Well, that, that's going to make somebody go become sick, but that doesn't make the mentally ill, that makes them a healthy person who's aware of the fact I'm freaking out because I don't have my needs met. I'm in danger. I'm hungry. I don't have my medical care taken care of. I don't have shoes. I'm not protected from the elements. I'm not safe. Anybody is going to become sick in those kind of circumstances. And to then have us be diagnosed by some book that we know is a fraud for profit, <laughs> Uh, then, you know, what, what happens then? You become a, a, a customer of something you don't want to buy. So I don't want to buy that shit anymore. So I'm no longer a customer of it. So I don't any longer fall into the category of person who subscribes to the fact that what they're selling me is actually legitimate. I actually you know? love that explanation. Yeah. I actually think that makes a lot of sense. Like, when we're not having our needs met, all sorts of things come out. Anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts, self-harm, addiction, like those are things that I can relate to. And it often is not having our needs met. But then as adults, we kind of need to transition into this point where we know how to meet our own needs. Do you know what I mean? So there's like this growth period where, and I don't mean the survival stuff, obviously the system's flawed and it's fucked up and all the rest of it, but I mean internally. We have to learn to communicate and to gravitate towards the people that are going to support us. But what we often do is we repeat negative toxic patterns, right? Because we're familiar with them. 
because if we've had toxic parents, we don't know what love is. Then we go into relationships that are like that. And do you know what I mean? Yeah, I have a much better idea in understanding and comprehension of what love is now. And it's been part of my personal investment in myself to become a person, to be the person I was, I was when I was born before all that shit happened to me. And so then to remember who I was. So I've been trying to remember, not trying, I've been remembering who I am intentionally. Uh, there's something I need to tell you. Uh, I had, as I said a few minutes ago, I had only had four years out of the system. I'm 45 years old. So tell us about that because you sort of like dropped a bomb saying you'd escaped or something only four years ago. And I'm curious about, so you've been in, in and out of the system, right? And so I'm like, what do, well, like, what do you mean? Like every, I'm, I'm speaking for the, re, the listener now who's going, what the hell? Is he an escapee? Like what's going on? <laughs> yes, but I'm fine. Is that why you're in Mexico City? <laughs> I was just in the U.S. a couple of days ago to do some, I had it for my visa. So th there ain't no issue with that. And in part, in part I'm, I'm, I'm certain because of my story. And here's, here's why. For 28 years, I was drugged. Yeah. yeah. With 40 different kinds of psychiatric medications. And then I found my documents that were provided for me by the state that I was already a vetted employee of, vetted to train mental health workers, including psychiatric providers in the state of Massachusetts. So when the company I worked for, well, well I should say the Department of Mental Health, and I obtained documents from them, it's a little tricky, right? When you find out that when you were a kid and they were responsible for your well-being, and you know what happened to you, and then you have your documents and it says, oh, we documented you were being abused, that you didn't need this psychiatric treatment, that you shouldn't be in these facilities, that we know there's a problem, that we know the psychiatrist was threatened with a lawsuit if he didn't forcibly medicate you and change your diagnosis or schizophrenia, and then you had, you grew breasts, and then you needed plastic surgery, and then you got sicker and sicker and sicker, and then all these other people who are, who are mandated reporters tried to help you in this documentation in a packet this big, it says, so, I don't know why the phone is ringing, but forgive me. It's all right. Because right. um, who's going to call me? So we know, we know factually that this happened to me. We know without any question that, it, uh, so distracting, <laughs> that they, there were people trying to advocate for me for, for years. So what you're getting is the real get, the real deal here. So that's what I love. I love. I love. And I'm t I'm thinking about the impact of being in the system for that long, but equally being medicated in so many ways for that long. And that sometimes. So I was raised in a cult, right? And um, even though there were good bits and bad bits and horrific bits and all sorts of things, it was still my normal. You know, it was my normality because that's how I, I was born into it, and that's how I was raised. And so in a way, you're the psychiatric institutions that becomes your normal, being drugged, being this, being that, you know, and people go, was that traumatic? And I'm like, it was, but actually the biggest trauma for me was the afterwards, because now I'm an adult and I don't really have the tools for building life in the real world as other people see it. 
because I've lived in this bubble, right? And I'm wondering, and, and like it was afterwards that I actually crashed out because I was like, fuck, I don't know what I'm doing. And, you know, mm-hmm. and I was like, I don't fit into normal society. And so I'm curious, to, but, but also because we don't have like shitloads of time, right? This, this point of like escape and, and kind of going, waking up from the fog in a way, like what that bit's been like just to get to this. I mean, that sounds traumatic in itself, that bit. In 2015, the last day of April was the last day I took a pill. The, the psychiatrist I had at Boston Medical Center insisted that if I ever wanted to have a better life or be healthy, I needed to stop taking psychiatric medication. So here I am, a guy who has lived his entire life saying, yes, I'm mentally ill. And I, I was doing good, you know, I was traveling the country, talking about my mental illness and like, really? um, oh yeah, I had this talk I, called Punk Rock, Mental Illness and Recovery. Well, guess what? <laughs> I got my documentation and what did it say? That we gave Craig pills and he became sick. That's a medical illness. That's a iatrogenic illness caused by medical treatment. And then what happened is I was abused for all these years and then my reaction, because I was destabilized by these pills, each, 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 you know, every six months, a different medication, the newest antipsychotic, the newest atypical medication. Ah, ba, 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 ba. Tell me a break. I've come to find out all these years later, reading my documentation, that they knew the whole time. I was just being drugged into a, a mess. So in 2015, after... Uh, they went to bat for me. They said, my God, Craig, you don't have these conditions. You don't have an illness. We need to remove them from your file. If you ever want to have a better life, you need to stop taking the pills. When psychiatrists are telling you that, and believe me, as you can appreciate, this is not a common, uh, common experience, and many people don't believe it, but screw them. Yeah, so we're saying this, the, the psychiatrist is saying get off the medication and I imagine you needed to do that gradually. You said there was a date that you, it was your last pill. Like, I'm, I'm curious about, af, like, right after that, like, how the fuck do you cope when you're, you're, you're almost, like, numbed out to, to feeling or sensation of the, of the real world in a way? It, a good example that's true is that for the first time in a very long time, mosquitoes that started to bite me. <laughs> that's so interesting because my blood was so toxic that they knew to not land in me wow when I was I guess I was 41 at this point I had no idea how to be you're asking specific, specifically so let's speak to that I had no idea how to be that's what I mean that how do you learn to be at 40 something after a lifetime of being medicated how the fuck do you do that without going off the rails. <laughs> or, or, <laughs> no, I get this. How do you go off the rails and then bounce back up in order to get on my podcast and talk? <laughs> I went through a living, you know what? Yes. And I lost everything I yes. had. Yes. Every, every, everything. But I didn't. I found, I found me. And it, you can't go back. You know, you, I went crazy. 
So oh, this yeah. is hilarious that you've used that word and, and, and I want to have full empathy for your experience. You were numbed out and medicated to the eyeballs so much that the mosquitoes avoided you from the age of seven or throughout your 14, at 14 when, as a teenager, right? Sorry, 14. Um, you suddenly get off it and it, obviously in it, the big picture, it sounds like the smartest thing in the world because it, when you're over medicated, that's no way to live, right? Or if you're medicated, but for, if I may, I had a, it's the same thing as be, having a cast put on your leg, but you don't have a broken leg, but you wear a cast for 28 years. You don't, you haven't built up the muscle. You haven't built up the resilience or the skill to wake up each day and know how to fucking function. I didn't know how to fucking function. Uh, relationship, re, re, my relationships, my ability to relate with others in, in, in all sorts of ways. Those casualties in my life. Of course. Me, yeah. People I loved, my history, my, my, the beautiful person that I am. Uh, Petra, I, I lost everything I had in the past four years. But what I had was sucked. I had this, this life that was where everyone knew. Because I self-identified. Because that's all I knew. I became sick. And you can't just change people's minds because uh, it's like, yeah, Craig, uh, you look the same to me. Same face. You have the same, you have the same name. I know it's you. Same voice. But I'm like, wait a second. The person you knew all these years was drugged. Not only was he drugged, he was drugged to keep him quiet. He was drugged to keep him down. Well, you look the same to me. I said, you know, you're right. I can't expect anybody from my life and my past to give me a break. Because it's not that they're bad people, because they're not necessarily bad people. They just, it's like, how, how, it's like if you have a, a, a pet, right? A dog, and the dog's super violent and, like, ah, that dog's violent. It's gonna bite me. Well, maybe maybe they had some sort of like, like push pin in their foot, and they're like in extreme pain. And then, oh my god, you take them to the vet, and like, oh my god, this dog is suffering. This is the explanation as to why this animal is is, is biting. And ah, let me let me help that. Let me help you, poor baby. Let me help you, poor baby. Let me fix that for you. Well, it doesn't work the same way with humans because we have this capacity to. To think and not think and to feel, and this combination is very com complicated. We're the only real creatures who can do it to this degree, and that's blessing, but it also it makes it difficult. So I can't reasonably expect anybody to understand. And so I've chosen to forgive them and say it public. I say it publicly and say, I forgive them. I mean, they can fuck themselves as well. And if, if you want to. <laughs> It's true. It's true. I'm very open. And, and if you want to come back and say, oh, Craig, I, I didn't realize it. And you're beautiful. And I love you. And I'm grateful. And I'll let you know. It's happened about 10 times in the past few years. With people from the past, I always smile. It's like, see, I, my smile does not, I, I, give, I give everything away on my smile. So I know I do. Uh, people come back to me and say, don't you remember? Remember you? Remember what? Yeah, me. I thought you were great. I remember you. But don't you know I was sick? It's like, yeah, you had these challenges, but like you're still you, or you still were you. I was like, what are you talking about? How you did you like me? You don't remember me as a as a bad person? No. 
this has happened many times. So, but how was I going to ever connect with people again if I didn't have the opportunity to be healthy enough to consider the possibility to getting off those pills, although it left me with brain damage and cognitive injury for a period of time. I was, I was prolific. I was prolific during that time period right before the pills. Uh, I went off the pills and I, everything burned down. I, in fact, I did an interview with a podcast in the U.S. We had to do it twice because the first time, like I guess in the interview, he, the man asked me, could I have a book about coping skills and, and it's been very successful. And he said, are you following your plan? Are you using your own book and work? And I said, no. He's like, I don't think this is working out. I was like, yeah. We did the interview again six months later. And he says in the interview, well, that was pretty pretty intense. Do you remember? I was like, yeah, I was not. So I was so sick when I got off those pills. Of course, if you are labeled with a mental I-L-L-N-E-S-S and you take these pills for 28 years, and then, and this is, this is the, the funniest and most effed up thing, you announce the world of all people, me, I'm already a public person. Mental, uh, travel the world. Mental, uh, slap, blah, 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 blah. Well, hey, everybody. Internet, internet. They, they removed my diagnosis, and they took me off the pills. This is what happens when you survive what I survived, is that things aren't ideal. You, you were asking me if they removed the diagnosis, and the answer is yes. They remove the diagnoses. I have, if you want to call it anything, complex trauma. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And people. Post traumatic stress. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. And people that's... have no idea. Yeah. I'm over exactly. it. I'm over it. I, I don't care anymore. Like, if people don't want to be down with me for whatever reason, I, I I'm looking at you here, so I'm not saying this to you, but to the whole world, hi, <laughs> if you don't understand that trauma is real, if you don't understand that the medication you so willfully dole out to people for the benefit of them without understanding the impact of what that means to their lives, and well then we're not really going to be uh, good friends because I don't tolerate people who engage in wanton abusing of people without recognizing that that's what they're doing. And frankly, that's what they did to me. And I'm an expert on this. I could speak clearly about my story. I could back it up. And yes, uh, without any question, uh, I went through a living you-know-what in the past four years. People don't understand. No. I can't expect them to. So I forgive them. You're all forgiven. Don't F with my life. And frankly, if you want to help me, help me have stability. I don't care what you do to take care of your mental health. You take pills? Fine. That's not my problem. But it's, I shouldn't be punished further for, by a system and a society and a people who are brainwashed into believing that pills are the way to fix everything, which in fact is the absolute opposite. The way to fix everything 
is to do the work on yourself and you can't do it when you're sedated and drugged. And once they got you, once you're connected to that chemical, you know, uh, intravenous through pills or some other way, that's, that's something in your system. Why were mosquitoes aware? Repelled, so, yeah. Repelled. And so, and here's the point. If mosquitoes, a tiny little creature, I'm not going to be claiming to be an expert on, on, on insects, but you can't go anywhere in the world and have this not be true. Everyone knows whether you're in Malaysia or Brazil or the UK or Mexico, everyone knows what a mosquito does. No offense to mosquitoes. I know you must have, they must have interesting lives more than I know, but we all know what they do is they bite you and they take your blood. Why did mosquitoes not bite me? And why do they bite me now? And what does that say about how people respond to me? And what does it say about my ability to interact and learn how to relate emotionally if, if people didn't want to touch me? Yeah, it doesn't nurture to you into repelling them. Yes. I, it doesn't nurture you into recovery. Now, when you said you need to be able to do the work without being sedated, what is the work in your opinion? What's the work that needs to happen when we've experienced trauma or we've got PTSD and what's the environment? What's the work? Well, there's reasons why we're the way that we are. I don't subscribe to this. My grandfather had this condition, so I do. Your grandfather had some experience that resulted in their behavior and then they had a really hard time. So they give it a name to describe the reaction. These days, an educated person who's not making money by using the DSM can look at somebody and say, well, that person has a legitimate reaction to being abused or trauma. Mm -hmm. They need to be supported and listened to and heard. Maybe we don't just have to bring them into oblivion in the same way if they were drinking over, like drinking a ton or using heroin or whatever. Is it, oh, no, you shouldn't be doing that. that that's, that's that. Okay, okay, so give me your legal pill instead. Yeah. Yeah, that is just insane. I use words like insane and crazy. That's how I've been described. I, I love being a crazy person. It's great. Everyone would be much better off if they embraced the fact that they're beautiful and the things that people said are wrong with them are the manifestation of the world being screwed up. And it's not, an, it's not a... A personal a way to identify somebody because they're a human being reacting to inhumane things. A person created to such severe abuses for so long. How dare anybody? How dare anybody try in any way, shape, or form to put a word on me? Walk in my shoes for one second, you'll collapse. So I laugh that off. Screw that. Screw that. So so listen. Craig, we're, we're, we're sort of coming to the end of our time, but I want to ask two more things. So did you say that you've, you, you've got a book out or you're putting some information out? Yeah, I, the book I published is called Better Days, a Mental Health Recovery Workbook. I have a, a Spanish language copy. Excuse me. Yeah, let's see it. Nice. Libro de Trabajo para la Recuperación de Salud Mental. 
So when you say it's a workbook, is it for somebody that's sort of in your position who might have been diagnosed or who has an experience or who is it for? You were asking me a minute ago about how we heal, like with the work. Yeah, what's the work? This is about, it's about introspection. How do you heal? Well, you heal by going within yourself and figuring out, it's the basic thing. I figured something out here. You figure out what works for you. Great. You figure out what doesn't work for you. We can do this. We can consider and envision, whatever you want to call it, how would my life be if I did more of what works for me and less of what didn't work for me? What are some things that we could do to make it better? And I always say, I don't care how crazy it is uh, what you say. Uh, you say, all I want to do is, is like go swimming all day or, or um, I want to like roll my hair into dreadlocks and, and travel the world and, or I want to be well, a, well, What you're saying is that it's personal. So it's finding, understanding yourself. I'm saying, I'm saying it's personal. Yeah. Okay. So, so I love the that. Last, the last, go ahead. And the last part is why I, I, I'm alive today in part because of a man named Victor Frankel who wrote a book called man's search for meaning. And in the, in that book, he, he, he recounted that he knew that when all around him was carnage and devastation and, and, and if he went to the, the, the edge of the fence at Auschwitz, right? And that he touched that fence, he would die from electric shock, but it didn't prevent the flower from growing at the edge of that fence. And for him to be able to go over, I'm illustrating it, uh, for him to be able to go over and say, that flower is beautiful. I can appreciate that beauty, even though that man next to me just got killed and gave up. I can appreciate the bird flying above, the mother bird who's flying above this pit of suffering, this, this, these thousands of people resigning to their fate because they don't know what else to do. But that bird is still taking its little worm to its little baby somewhere to feed it. That's beautiful. That's what Viktor Frankl believed. He survived and he changed the world by writing a book that taught millions of people that you can be, you can be in the deepest, darkest place and feel alone and feel like it's all done. But you still have the capacity to choose. You still have it in you. And just maybe, just maybe, if you do that, you'll be okay. I'm an example of that. In the past four years, everything collapsed. I lost everything I had. I've only had a home for three months. I was homeless for 15 months. I haven't been able to get a job in the United States because, well, the truth is, it's because I'm awesome at what I do. And it's hard for people to reconcile with the fact that I got so freaking healthy when most people who get off pills or, or not really struggle immensely. I had a remarkable recovery that's unexpected. I've been living an unexpected and yet remarkable life for as long as I've lived. And everything that's ever been done to me to hurt me, and let's be factual here, it, let's honor the fact that that's real. These things that have been done to hurt me weren't random or coincidence. These were done. This was choices that were made to hurt a child. They, they all took an oath when they became doctors to do no harm. And what they did was harm. And then when they, when they realized they did harm, they did nothing about it except shut their mouths, which, in fact, you were asking earlier, 
And I said, I escaped. Yeah. Ain't no one's going to bother me because my truth is real. And you hear how I speak. Look at my smile. This guy is going to speak the truth. And speaking the truth protects me. So, yeah. In three years, I lost everything I had that I thought was valuable. Now I'm working back to have an even better life. I spent 15 months homeless. At the same time, I spent those 15 months traveling the world with a backpack, with squatting, eating out of trash. At the same time, I gave professional workshops. <laughs> it paid well at the time. And like for in the Czech Republic, okay, uh, I spoke at the National Institute of Mental Health in Prague, uh, training mental health workers in France, because my book's in French, in the Netherlands. I've been to the UK once, in Ireland, in Poland. I've been to Ukraine, Greece, Turkey. Because if you have, a, because this is really important, because you're asking me about what's my life like getting off these pills. Well, when you live in a country that's uh, English speaking, and it's called the United States, which is the most dominating country in the world, and our language is the most dominating language in the world. So it's easy to be like, oh, Craig Lewis, I'm like, internet Google. Oh, he's crazy. Or I read his crazy shit. Or he wrote this, or he said that. Or he had a freak out. Oh, give me a break. I'm a survivor. I'm a trauma survivor in extremely difficult situations and circumstances. And people know, and they can either help and be helpful and be nice and be compassionate, or they can do the opposite. And I've had so much of the opposite. So I'm not going to give them the, the middle finger or the two finger salute as you guys do in the yeah, UK. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's what I'm saying, that I can't escape. And so what's, yeah. I'm speaker. Um, I, I, everyone. And so what I'm, I'm hearing, what I'm hearing, let, let me just pause you. First of all, I love your smile. I love your, your uh, genuine authenticity. And I really agree with you in thinking that <laughs> it's how do we as, a citizen, as citizens of the world approach somebody who's had an experience of trauma? Do we just perpetuate that cycle through our fear, through our ignorance, through um, our behaviors, through wanting to stay in our safe little bubble and not look outside of it and pretend that everything's okay because we just are, can hide in our own houses, right? Or are we willing to wake up, open our eyes to um, the suffering that is out there? And you have a very particular story, but there's so many other stories, right, of, of suffering and are we willing to do our part to take the risk to reach out in compassion to the people around us? And I love you talking about Viktor Frankl, obviously the best book out there, but, but because it's so like heartfelt, the experience of no matter what your circumstances, and you said it so beautifully, no matter what your circumstances, we have a choice in how we choose to react to those circumstances, right? And, and, you're coming from this beautiful place where you can impact so much change because it's coming from your heart and your experience and your suffering rather than from a book and from you know a school or somewhere where people think they're important, right? Uh, which I love about you. Now, Craig, what are your hopes for the future? What are your hopes moving forward, finally? <laughs> well, I think in about 15 minutes, I'm gonna go have, I'm gonna, in 15 minutes, I'm gonna have some food. Lovely. <laughs> Yeah, I'm excited about that. And um, I'm going to go outside. I'm going to find us some flowers because it's, it's a bit tropical. And I'm going to smell those flowers. Like, I had a funny experience just anecdotally. Uh, when I was living in the U.S., uh, I was walking down the street and I stopped to smell the flowers. And a truck driver, 
like a truck driver dude. And so he goes, hey, I like that. That's cool. I was like, hey, man, sometimes you have to stop and smell the flowers because that's all you can do. And so I'm going to go do that. And um, oh, yesterday I found a frog and I, saw, I made a video of the frog. So that's cool. I'm going to put that on the internet for everyone to see. I had a little <laughs> conversation. And uh, first frog I've seen in a long time, right when I left the airport, got off the plane. So that's fun. And um, yeah, I mean, what am I going to do? I'm going to live. I'm going to truly live. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to pray uh, to, to all the things that are beautiful in the world. And I'm going to continue to forgive myself, which I have to do all the time for all sorts of things, minor, of course, or whatever. I'm going to continue to try to be as honorable as I know that I am. And if I make a poor choice to try to address it, I'm going to forgive all people for what they do not know. I'm going to be compassionate. I'm going to invest myself and in, in perpetuating beauty. I'm going, to, I'm going to love people, even if they hurt me, and try to see their truth. I'm going to validate those who have not been nice to me, and I'm going to validate the beauty in those who are no longer in my life because uh, they contributed something. And have, they deserve to, be, to not be tossed in the trash like I was, like, like uh, just a piece of garbage, like a total. Like you're, all you are, Craig, is a complete piece of garbage. We're not going to recognize that this part of you is the reason why. You're, you're beautiful also. So I'm not going to do that to other people. And that's what trans helps me transcend in every moment that I can look at the people who have not been nice to me and say, well, they're also hurt Hurting. and they're just surviving. What does, what does it mean to be a survivor to survive? And if you don't, you don't come from an, a street, I come from the street. I didn't come from a nice home. I came from a rich family, but I came from a the street. So I know the street. You put me in a place like with poor people, put me in a place with brown people, put me in a place with poverty, put me in a place with people who are marginalized, who are treated uh, less than, 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 than as a white American man is usually viewed as being treated. Welcome to my comfort zone. I love people, <laughs> love everybody. And I'm gonna spend my time with people who see that in me. And it doesn't require language. It doesn't, it doesn't require language. People see you all the time. If you let them, they, they're able to. That's why last night when I saw the man in the street, his name was Eric. Not only did he leave me with a full belly, he had a place to sleep. What, what does it matter? Like I'm, a, I'm currently poor. Inside, I'm rich. I think within six months or a year, I won't be struggling the way I am. People pay attention. My work's awesome. You want me. And so, <laughs> you do. It says, I have to help this man. What, what, what does it matter? 200 pesos. It's like $10. Yes, I don't have a lot of money at all. That dude had less than me. He's taken care of. And I told him. Craig, yeah. we, we, need to, we need to close. But okay. I just have to say, like, when I said, what does your future hold? You brought in some particular kind of magic, um, which is how do we take the next step to see what's beautiful in front of us? and not get obsessed with, the world is so obsessed with achievement and with things and with consumerism and with, and, and with um, you know, status and these sorts of things. And you're just bringing it right back down. I, I know it's coming from that survival place, but like I needed to be reminded, like what am I gonna do next? I'm gonna enjoy my son who's gonna come home from school. You know, I'm gonna connect with him as a 15 year old human being that I have an opportunity to influence and to love right? In a way that perhaps I didn't get in the same way, right? I'm going to have an opportunity to go outside. I'm literally going to smell the roses. 
and I'm going to think of Craig. I'm going to, I'm going to channel Craig. I'm going to be like, when I'm outside, what's the one small thing that I can do to truly live? Because you've experienced not living, you know, you've experienced being completely numbed out and not enjoying the beauty that is in the world. And you've chosen to turn that adversity into your advantage to not hate because it would be understandable for you to hate, right? And you've chosen to forgive and to look at people with kindness and to choose to walk the world with integrity. And I'm so proud of you. And I appreciate you so much. And I know that you're gonna create a beautiful impact in the world. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Craig, all the way from Mexico City. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Please do subscribe and review on iTunes. Every comment makes a difference. We really appreciate hearing from you. And please do get in touch through PetraBelzebor.com if you're interested in any training, coaching, therapy, or just to join the community and get more information on ways that you can build your own resilience. Until next time.